Yeah, I like the explicits. And I was like, well, it does make a point. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this show, we plan to dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to not only share some great information, but have a little fun along the way. So I'm your host, Chris Boyer, and today I'm joined by my co-host and friend, Reed Smith. Good morning, Reed. How's it going? Pretty good. So this is, the, we're, we're recording this like right before South by Southwest. Kicks off today. This is on a Friday. Uh, what is today? The 10th? Is that right? Yep. Yep. So we're recording on Friday the 10th, which is the first day of the interactive festival. And so as soon as we get done, I will be uh, hooking it downtown uh, with the masses. I'll be posting some pictures and stuff. So Cool. Uh, be sure to check out the, uh, I guess this will post afterwards, so be sure to check out my my Twitter feed. So, And we'll make sure to do kind of like a maybe a, a post-conference wrap-up in the next uh, podcast. Yeah, that would be good. That, that may actually be a good topic to talk about sometime is just conferences. I get asked that a lot, quite honestly. Um, you know, what conferences should I go to? What are good ones? When are they? What are they about? Who goes to them? So that may, that may actually be a good topic. Yeah, it just might be. So that's cool. Well, Reed, um, I know that this is our sixth podcast in, but you know there may be some new listeners. So why don't we just very quickly do a little introductions? Tell tell people a little bit about who you are. Absolutely. So socialhealthinstitute.com is where you can find me and find uh, how to track me down. Uh, another easy way is just my name, Reed Smith. Uh, Twitter handle Reed Smith. Um, and you can, you can find me there. I'm pretty active on, on, on the Twitter side and, um, yeah, it shouldn't be too hard to find, uh, but I spend my, spend my days working with hospitals and healthcare systems. And, uh, here we are. And, and I can be found online with at Chris Boyer. My website is ChristopherBoyer.com and I'm out there as active, maybe not as active as you are, Reed, but I'm still out there on, on Twitter and LinkedIn and a variety of different places. And I too spend my time with hospitals and health systems, helping them with their digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies. And that's why we launched this podcast, because we felt that, that there was like a, a need in the market for people to hear about some best practices. That's right. And so today we have a topic that's a, a that's a little change from the last uh, five that we've done in that it's only two words. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. For those that listened last time, we made a joke that from a topic perspective, everything we had done was uh, was three words at that point. So yes, this week uh, we're breaking breaking course and talking a little bit um, in a little bit of a different realm. So today's topic is digital professionalism. So everybody hears this about being professional. You've heard this all your life, uh, especially probably as you started your career uh, about you know how to be professional, dress professional, things like that. And so this is a, a similar track, I guess, around what does that mean for the digital space? Conceptually, there's a lot of places you can participate online uh, and or not participate and or be different people. And so how does that go against your personal brand 
And, you know, what does digital professionalism mean and, you know, kind of how does that work? You know, Rob Birdfield from Innova in the second podcast when we interviewed him, he, he indicated that healthcare professionals have a unique challenge being in the digital space in that their personal brand, their personal name is amplified online and it almost becomes the brand of themselves online. And that's how a lot of consumers, patients actually find them is through their name. And so along with that comes a heavier onus on maintaining their digital professionalism or maintaining their brand online. Unlike other professions, you, you can't really friend your customers, so to speak, online. You, it's, it, we're, we're restricted. Restrictions, but yet it's very hard, especially when you get into the, the clinical space. And I'm speaking a little bit outside my knowledge base because obviously I'm not clinical, but it's hard to separate yourself professionally and, and personally in a lot of cases because you, you are a physician or you are a nurse. So yeah, you know, I think some of the restrictions there become, you know, you're a physician, you know, just as much when you get home in the evenings as you are during the day, but yet becoming friends, if you will, online with patients or potential patients uh, is probably not the best way to go for a number of reasons. And it's more than just friending them, right? It's it's also how you maintain yourself professionally with your peers, how you participate in perhaps medical discussions online, how you actually uh, claim yourself as a thought leader or, or participate in, in thought leadership content. I think that digital professionalism for healthcare professionals is something that's relatively new. And many students and, and residents that are coming through the professional ranks now have actually experience with social media, a variety of these other tools that this is naturally part of the way that they communicate with others. And there's an impact of their need to use these tools or their desire to use these tools and the reality of how do you practice medicine or how do you be a professional in, in this space? Yeah, because I think there's two sides to this, which one is the importance as a thought leader, in this case, a medical professional to be active in this space and make sure that the right information is getting out. But yet, you know, how do you go out and, and participate online and not engage everyone that's there? You know, tweet chats are a good example where, where you're participating online around a particular hashtag. And so you have a lot of people coming from a lot of different backgrounds to that tweet chat. So you've got physicians, you know, and, and other types of caregivers like nurses and other clinical staff. Uh, but then you also have uh, survivors or patients, former patients, potential patients. So how do you participate in those types of chats and still maintain a certain level of professionalism to where you're not violating or or overstepping in a sense, you know, and providing some sort of you know medical advice. It's interesting. It's we've talked about this. We've been talking about this now for a few minutes, and we haven't used the term HIPAA yet. But I, there are actual restrictions on what what professionals can and cannot share with, about individuals, about personal health records, personal health information. They almost use that as like a, an impediment to begin participating. They say, because of HIPAA, we don't want to communicate. We don't want to start using these tools. We'd rather just stay safe, restrict our, our care practice within the four walls of our office, and not really have a public presence. Yeah, I, you know, sometimes it's just easier and some of that, you know, I hate to default back to, you know, generational differences or things like that. But there is a, a pro and con, I guess, depending on where you are within your career, how established your practice is. Maybe if they have a very established practice, what's the value 
you know, what's the value proposition of being active online versus somebody maybe new, uh, you know, new out of school, new out of residency that's trying to, you know, make a name for themselves. Maybe it's in a larger metropolitan area or what have you. And they want to get more involved. They want to get more involved on the health system side. They want to get more involved uh, within their own practice. Well, a couple things from that, you know, when you talk about uh, physicians that kind of manage their own practice, in a sense, they're they are their own entrepreneurs. They're responsible for running their own business, their own practice. They maintain their own brand. And because of that, they they may have, um, view participating in an online space as something that's really critical to maintaining their brand, their awareness, but they're not given the right um, you know tools or they're, they're not really quite sure exactly how to to manage themselves and conduct themselves because again, that conflict of you know what can you share, what can't you share, how can you participate? yet they see the value of that and we see that intersection occur a lot with some of those specialties which have maybe a retail overlay to them. When I worked at hospitals in the past, inside hospitals, I remember the plastic surgeon and reconstructive surgery departments would always come to us and say, look, our competitors are out there and they're sharing pictures of patients before and after shot and their websites are very clear and they're and they're participating in these online communities. What do we do? What, we want to be there. Whereas, um, and in my case, the hospitals I was working for, they were employed by the hospital and there were professional guidelines that prevented them from being that open. There were restrictions around you know HIPAA to share patient uh, photographs unless you go through this really onerous p- process of getting signatures. And so it really becomes sort of a conflict in those regards. No, it absolutely does. Because there's always going to be uh, someone else that's doing something else. And, and that, that's ultimately a tripping point sometimes. And because there are these particular regulations and guidelines, and some of it, quite honestly, comes down to that system's interpretation of the law. I've worked with quite a few that look at it and interpret it and then go to the right of that. Here's what we think is conservative, and we're going to take another couple of steps just to be sure. When we talk about digital professionalism, it's not just doctors we're talking about. It's nursing staff. It's support staff. It extends to everybody that works with the health system or that physician practice. As we look at where this new world is, where more and more consumers are trying to get information and learn more about us, and we're embracing things like physician transparency and ratings and reviews like we talked about last week, we're also kind of up against the fact that how do we continue to maintain our professionalism and how does that professionalism change and be dynamic as we move forward? We did have this one particular article that I'll go ahead and mention called Exploring Digital Professionalism. The author talks about the components or principles of digital professionalism in kind of a framework around that. You know, they include proficiency, reputation, and responsibility. And I think we've, we've talked some about reputation and even responsibility, but I don't know that the responsibility can come to probably their point without the proficiency. This kind of goes back to, you know, what are we doing as organizations to train and educate within the organization to make sure people understand the tools, they understand that you don't own anything that goes on these platforms and you can't control where it goes. And once it goes, you can't take it down. I mean, you can, but it's already out there. You know, you can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. I think the proficiency piece is probably part of this digital professionalism component that gets skipped. You know, it's more about 
responsibility. I think um, one thing that always keeps resonating in my mind and is what I heard when we were at a Mayo Clinic social media conference in, a number of years ago, when Dan Goldman, which is their their legal professional, he said that creating digital professionalism or creating guidelines around digital professionalism, that these guidelines should be treated as guardrails, not speed bumps. The good thing is, Reed, is that later on in this uh, podcast, we're going to be interviewing an actual medical professional that has a lot of experience <laughs> around this. So, yeah, that'll be good because you and I, we're, you know, we're just we're talking and uh, talking and talking, and then we, you know, we'll actually visit with someone who is who has lived in this space, and and that will probably be much more beneficial. So, if you'd like to skip ahead, you know, at the end of the day, though, I think that it's it's the the three concepts around proficiency, reputation, and responsibility. How do you know what these tools do? How do you know where the limitations are? Understanding how you manage your reputation in these spaces. And then also, what is your responsibility as a healthcare professional moving forward to be participatory in these on these platforms? What, 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 what is news? Okay, now we're in the segment called What's News? This is where we take an article and kind of break apart um, the topic and use that article as a way to kind of talk a little bit further about digital professionalism. This is an article actually published last year in June of 2016 on FierceHealthcare.com that's called Young Doctors Take a Casual Attitude Toward Professional Social Media Use. So in the article, it it actually refers to a report that was done by the Journal of Medical Internet Research. And there's a link to the full report that you can actually download uh, without paying. And it indicates in there that more than 50% of these younger healthcare professionals, quote unquote, digital natives, say they live almost always online. And 80% say they don't worry at all or worry little about internet privacy. And I think that the intent of this article and the subsequent study says, you know, how does this attitude towards security, towards privacy, towards this digital nativism manifest itself through these residents and, and, and that are becoming, you know, ultimately physicians? And more than 50% feel it would be okay to communicate with colleagues on social media. I wonder what they mean by social media. Uh, you know, I, I think there are there are certain platforms that have been built, obviously specific to the physician community, you know, Doximity, Sermo, you know, et cetera, things like that. You know, in my mind, that's that's one way to view that. But if they truly mean what most of us would consider social media, Twitter, for example, yeah, I mean that's interesting. I don't know that it's I don't know that that's a negative necessarily. To communicate with peers, right? Um, and that's interesting because the study, you know, actually asks about communicating with peers. I would say that every everybody that has been using these tools realizes the value and the benefit of social media being tools in which we can communicate with others, with our with other people in our in our industry. And we could take that to you know to to a larger extent. Sermo doximity aside, tw- Twitter has become a very great resource for, for medical professionals to talk to one another around particular hashtags to even develop, you know, a sense of tweeting out at conferences. You know, that, that obviously has been, been a great way for people to participate, not only at the conference, but those that maybe couldn't attend. And you see some of the bigger conferences like ASCO, for example, or something like that, where 
that's become a huge, you know, kind of component, communication component of the conference. You know, and there's even, there are now becoming more and more tools and more and more places where physicians can communicate. Um, again, we talk about Doximity and Sermo. Have you heard about this, um, the Instagram for doctors called Figure One? Yes, yes. I get an email from them every day with some, I have an account for some reason, even though I'm not a physician, but um, I had to unsubscribe because I just didn't want those pictures every day. So, Figure One is meant to be another social community where physicians can communicate with physicians and actually share photographs of particular conditions, of particular inside the body, inside the body cavity photographs mm -hmm. or scans of other patients and treatments that they see. And they share this with one another through this close, secure environment. Now, what's interesting is, is you had an account. I still do, I guess. I have an account for doximity, although I'm not a physician. Many of these so-called closed medical professional social groups, which are, are closed for a reason, they're saying to make them secure, to make them so that they the doctors can communicate freely without worrying of any kind of restrictions around HIPAA or PHI sharing or what have you, that even though they're as close as they can be, they're becoming more and more open. So there are security challenges to that. Just looking back through the article here, 50% say that they are almost always online. You know, 80% say they don't they don't worry at all or have very little worry about internet privacy. The thought there is is I think as we continue to see the next class of medical school students or you know whatever it may be, uh, I think this is just becoming the way that they have grown up. This is the way they communicate in life, not just within their profession. So they're more comfortable with it, right, wrong, or indifferent. That's, this is just kind of, this is just what they know. That's right. Well, you know, in true fashion, the author of this article puts the blame where it should be, right? On millennials. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> it says, millennial healthcare providers appear to have a relaxed stance towards interprofessional digital networking and may not recognize the potential ramifications of blurring their identities online, the researchers of this uh, report write. Well, if where to put the blame is not clear, just default to the millennial. That that's that's the safe bet. Well, I do agree with that point of that you know that there is, and they even reiterate you need to educate on rules around online privacy, digital professionalism, patient information privacy, and and you know looking at policies already in place at the institutions that you work. I think all of those are are indeed true. It's very important that we as as an industry recognize that. Actually, many of these younger millennial healthcare professionals that are entering into the workforce actually may have a better way of communicating, may have a better way of driving change of the way we use these tools. I actually don't think that their perspective is bad at all. It's actually something that we need. And that, that goes much further than just physicians talking to other physicians or some sort of clinical talking to another clinical staff or something like that. I mean, this, this goes all the way back to you know, some of the other topics we've even talked about around patient experience and things like that, where why are we not providing the mechanism for folks to communicate with us the way they want to communicate with us? You know, we're, we're pushing them through existing channels versus giving the option. But there's some very real, you know, guardrails. But to, you know, Dan Goldman's point, 
don't let those become, you know, not just speed bumps, but roadblocks altogether. When we look at how care will be practiced in the future, and we, we talk about trends of big data in healthcare, and we talk about all of this business intelligence, all this information that we're gathering around patients and being able to practice our care better, I see that actually the advent of these online tools that encourage transparency, encourage openness, will give us a new approach to the way we practice medicine in the future. You know, who knows? Maybe Twitter will actually become part of the patient record. Maybe, you know, patients want to talk to doctors on email. It's only a matter of time before they're going to start using these other tools where they want to communicate with physicians. So why don't we turn over the responsibility of understanding how to use these tools in the new world with some of these younger, these younger professionals that are coming into the space? The problem with all of this is that technology quickly outpaces the law or regulations or, or what have you. And so the problem becomes, I would like to do these things, but what does that mean? Do I document this? How do I document this? There's no epic tie-in for Twitter or whatever, you know, whatever the deal is. And so, you know, doctors are left, you know, taking screenshots and trying to make notes. I mean, we're going to have to, as an industry, you know, speed up uh, a little bit and some of the legacy technology is going to have to speed up to, to better you know take into account the way uh, society communicates touch point touch counterpoint there are two sides to every story ready fight alright here we are at the uh, most popular segment, I say that every week, the most popular segment of the podcast, the touch point, touch counterpoint, or touch point, counter touch point, mm-hmm. <laughs> whichever your preference is, um, <clears throat> where Chris and I take uh, opposing views, extreme opposing views, whether we believe them or not, of the topic of the day, which today is digital professionalism. So we are going to take uh, the opposite sides of that, which is, should you be 100% in every instance, 100% transparent online? Absolutely. I actually believe you honestly have to be 100% transparent online. You want to default to being completely um, expose yourself online because what you're doing then is you're allowing yourself to um, take responsibility for what you do, your your professionalism, and it also uh, enhances your reputation. Only if you want to be unemployed. That is a terrible, that's terrible advice. Yes, we should obviously communicate and engage with folks online, and we've talked about that in previous podcasts, but the idea of being completely transparent at the point that you get yourself sued, you know, maybe this is a good idea in the future, but right now you just, you, you can't do that. There's not, there's not an avenue to do it. The best disinfectant is sunlight. So that's what they always say. And I agree with you while there, there are a lot of risks that really speaks to the fact that we as a, you know, we understand that there are risks involved, but we have to embrace those risks and we have to be able to uh, be confident in the way. I'm not saying that you want to say, look, I, I was falling asleep while I was doing the surgery and, you know, 
know, I accidentally took out their left lung instead of their right lung. You don't want to be like that to the point of that. But but you do have to, to a certain extent, own up to the responsibilities of the work that you've done. You have to be transparent. But I think that's a HIPAA violation in most cases. You know, someone brings something to the light of day. You can't confirm that online. So you have to, at the very least, take the conversation offline if you if you choose to engage. Plus, how much do we really want to know from people? Like, I mean, you, you don't need to. I don't, I don't need to have a physician on every platform all the time. I need them doing their job. I'm not saying to be proactively transparent. You don't want to tweet out the fact that you made a mistake. But if a patient approaches you over Twitter or social media or some other transparent channel, you you want to. Con- conduct that conversation transparently online and let them know that you are addressing that. Because when others see that, it's actually supporting your reputation. Again, not suggesting that we maybe share their medical records and scans through, you know, a Twitter chat, but you want to conduct yourself in a way that people can see that you're responding to those complaints. Yeah. I mean, responding to the complaints, but you know, there's not a whole lot you can do there online. I still think you know, it doesn't, it doesn't help. Yes. You need to say, yes, I, I see that you've made this comment, but then you've got to give them some pathway to, to get that sorted out. I, I don't think you can deliberately get into a back and forth online. Nobody wins there. That, that's not gonna, that's not helpful. Yeah. But I mean, there's nothing more infuriating than like sending a, a Facebook message to a hospital that says, you know, I had this problem and then they say, oh yeah, well talk to your, you know, you need to call our patient care navigator and here's the phone number. They're not going to pick up the phone and call. What is that? You're making it more friction. You're preventing the fact of interceding and actually responding to them in a professional way. Yeah, but you can't, I don't know what you're supposed to do for them. I mean, you can't fix everything through a Facebook message or 140 characters. Well, yeah, sure. You have to do at least a couple of tweets. (laughs) (laughs) So a a thread of tweets. (laughs) A thread of tweets. You have to mansplain through a thread of tweets. Um, (laughs) No, um, actually, this is where where it gets a little bit difficult. I think we have to call a scene on this one because... I don't think that it's we can be extreme. I think that there is a sense, personally, to bring back to what, how I really feel here, is that um, I think that you do want to act in a very transparent way, but you do have to protect yourself. Yeah, the right answer is somewhere in the middle. <clears throat> I mean, you, you have to be transparent and you have to be accessible, but yet legally you can't say certain things. You know, even even if, depending on what your organization says, there's some that even if the patient's disclosing certain things online, you know, you're still probably better off not confirming that. Because again, you're probably not going to drive resolution solely, you know, on Twitter or Facebook or something like that. You're going to have to get someone to someone who can help and you know, has more context and has more resources or availability. And that's probably going to be, you know, via a phone call or, or, you know, maybe email, uh, depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think looking at your peers and working with, you know, if you, if you work for an organization that has legal guidelines to certainly get their input and also be listening to sort of those trends of where, um, you know, what you, how far your consumers are going to push you, how far the patients are going to push you. But overall, yeah, you're right. We have to walk sort of the fine line. I think that's true of every industry, even though a lot of industries say they're hundred percent transparent, they really aren't. Um, and I think that that's, that, that plays 
into that whole concept of how we build our professionalism. All right, we are back with our favorite segment of the podcast, which is Ask the Expert. I am here with a very special guest, Dr. Brian Vardabedian from Texas Children's Hospital down in Houston. We are live from the expo floor of South by Southwest 2017 in the Shure microphone booth. So we are borrowing an external microphone for my iPhone and doing this interview. So hopefully this all turns out really well. Brian, thanks for spending a few minutes and uh, visiting with us. Yeah, it's great to be here, Reed. Always, always happy to help. Yes, and uh, this is always a time that you and I at least get to see each other every year, and uh, which is the madness of South by Southwest. And so we're here on Monday, so we're getting towards the end of South by. Uh, thank goodness. I feel like I've been standing for four days straight. You, it's, it is like being in Vegas here, I tell you that. <laughs> so we are, like I said, we're on the expo floor uh, and having a good time. And so things are starting to wind down. we got one more day left of health programming, uh, which should be great. We wanted to spend a few minutes. And uh, early in their episode, everybody got to hear a little bit of Chris and I talking about uh, digital professionalism. You know, that's something you've talked a lot about, spent a lot of time um, and, and uh, you know, talk a little bit about kind of your experience in that space and kind of how that came about. Yeah, so I guess my journey with digital professionalism or thinking about this, uh, this space began back when I uh, started a blog uh, for a book that I wrote back in 2008. At the time, uh, it was uh, decided that um, I, I really needed to have uh, a blog associated with this new book I was writing. So from a pr- promotional aspect. Yeah, I had to write like, hey, you need to, you need to write a blog. Right, start the blog. Yeah. And um, realized pretty quickly that I had a platform to the world. That kind of took off. It was called Parenting Solved at the time. Then in 2008, Twitter came along. Uh, I jumped onto Twitter. Now, what happened then was... Um, as I get into the public realm, I start to see more and more physicians in 2008, 2009 also coming into the public space. Sure. And with that came all kinds of questions like, what do I do when a patient contacts me? What if a patient complains about me? Can I talk to a patient? Yeah. You know, right now, like a lot of those things have been sorted out. But back then, it was really novel, and no one knew what to do. And so I started a site called 33 Charts, which kind of covers some of the issues that I've faced and seen at the intersection of medicine and initially social media and now technology in general. Um, And so that's been great for me because it served as like a center of community for these discussions. Yeah, and you've got quite the following there, and we'll we'll reference how to find that here in just a few minutes. But... Uh, you know, one thing that you know I, I kind of found, I guess, interesting through all this is that uh, Chris and I were looking at an article earlier, and they were talking about digital professionalism. And what we typically think about is your online reputation and responsibility. But they also talked about, and I've never really thought about it this way, so I'd like to get your thoughts, um, the proficiency of which you understand and use the tools. 
this part of yeah. this bigger, I, I guess this bigger, it's not just, hey, don't do these things. Right. It's also understand right. what these other things are and how yeah. to use them. I mean, is that fair? Well, sometimes uh, we reference that space as digital literacy. Okay. Like, how do we use these tools to do what we want to do? Simple okay. things. How do we make a podcast? How do you add a hyperlink onto a website? Or how do you start a blog? Yeah. Or how do you start a Twitter account? So yeah. all these things are sort of the... It, it's a whole other element. One is, how do, you, how do you get public? How do you go from being this doctor who lives in an office space and is, to someone who is really out in public writing and conversing and engaging? Then the professionalism is, how do you conduct yourself while you're there? Does that oh, make sense? Yeah, that makes makes total sense. So someone who is, uh, you know, maybe it's a new physician, maybe it's somebody working in a healthcare system that wants to get more physicians involved or whatever. What are kind of those first steps? You know, what, what are the kind of the checks and balances or, you know, what do they need to do as they start thinking about this space as they yeah. get started? Um, you have tips or resources or, you know, what, well, what would you recommend? You know, I think probably the first place to start, depending upon your employment situation as a physician, is to figure out what the policies are of your local hospital, practice, or institution. Um, most institutions allow doctors to have blogs and Twitter accounts, but it's a great place to start to know what the boundaries are. Yeah. Um, for the doctor who doesn't have any public presence, and I mean public presence like social media profiles and all that sort of thing, uh, Probably the best place to start is to find someone in your niche or your area who's doing precisely what you want to do. So, for example, okay. if you're an OB-GYN, um, rather than trying to figure out what OB-GYNs are doing with Twitter, find a half a dozen amazing OB-GYNs, look what they're doing, follow them for a few weeks, and, and kind of lurk or stalk them, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, that makes total sense. And so um, that's great advice. Understand the guardrails that exist. Right. And kind of the rules of the road. Um, and instead of recreating the wheel, go find somebody that's already been doing this like yourself for a number of years. And there's a bunch of other physicians out there um, that may be in your specialty, maybe not. But, you know, they understand how this thing works and they're pretty active and can give you some ideas. So that's... That is awesome. So where, what is the future of this? And maybe you can talk a little bit about, I know there's some curriculum that you've helped develop historically. Yeah. Um, is that, do we see more of a formalized education process for physicians yeah. and, and other clinical staff? Or what's, kind of what's the, So yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, because despite being almost a decade into what we might call the information age, Medical education has failed to really keep up with what's happening in the digital space. Does that make sense? Yeah. There are some medical schools, that have, like Baylor College of Medicine, that has a formalized curriculum that helps students understand how not to be stupid and when yeah. you graduate, how to start your digital footprint, etc. cetera. Uh, and we're starting to see that uh, find its way into curricula around the country. Uh, the second big piece is continuing medical education, which has also failed to keep up. But you have doctors who are mid-career, they don't have a medical school or anything to teach them, and so they're trying to catch up and figure out what they can and can't do and what they shouldn't do or how they should optimize their digital footprint. No, that makes total sense. So that's interesting. I, you know, I don't guess I've really distilled it down that way, but you, you obviously, to your point, have people that are 
entering medical school, in medical school, their residency, their fellowship, right. but they're in some sort of formal education process. Right. Then you've got the younger careerists, you've got people that are a little more established, yeah. and and then you've got folks that are you know on the tail end For of their long. careers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. So CME is really where we would capture okay. that mid-career. And uh, so we've done some of that. Um, we've, I've done some CME around the country with different organizations, but it's still to this day is not seen as a huge priority. And so consequently hospitals, I think, find themselves in these situations where they're trying to dig themselves out of a crisis when it could have been prevented with some good education. Yeah, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. Thank you very much. I certainly appreciate you doing this. Absolutely. Uh, if people would like to track you down online, what's the recommendation? What's the best way for people to find yeah, you? Yeah, uh, probably the best place is 33charts.com. It's a number, 33charts.com. I'm also on Twitter, uh, fully spelled out, Dr. underscore V. Dr. underscore V. He's Brian Vardabedian, uh, pediatric gastroenterologist down at Texas Children's in Houston. Uh, be sure to track him down. A great source of knowledge, and uh, appreciate you doing this. Thank you, Reed. Thanks. All right, Reed. Here we come, close up to the end of uh, episode six on digital professionalism. Uh, this was a pretty good conversation we had today. We kind of went into a few studies on digital professionalism, what that means. We kind of went into talking about some of the trends that are being brought in by the newer, younger healthcare professionals. Did a good touch point, touch counterpoint, or touch point, counter touch point on 100% transparency. And I think that the conversation with Dr. Brian Varbidian was actually really good. I really appreciate you having time to sit down with him. This is a part of the podcast where we kind of wrap things up. We talk about what's next, and then we make a recommendation. I know what's next for you is uh, is South by Southwest. Now, they're going to get this um, podcast. It's going to go out after South by Southwest. So what's happening after that, Reed? What's your next thing after that? Uh, the next thing after that, we've mentioned it previously, uh, but we'll have, a, we'll have a link, will be the... Uh, the webinar Mayo Clinic social media network. So we'll be talking about the data and uh, survey findings uh, that we we came up with after talking to a whole bunch of folks that lead marketing efforts in Texas. So we'll we'll have a link in the uh, in the show notes to that. Yeah, that'll be really good. I'm looking forward to hearing that. And my next thing will be speaking about uh, developing a 360 degree view of your patients and how organizations can start to develop a digital patient experience uh, and and digital strategy to embrace that and bring that forward. I'll be talking with, with two health systems, at, and this will be at the Forum for Healthcare Strategist Conference in Austin in May, and I'm looking forward to that. Let's talk about some recommendations. Reed, you got something fun that you want to recommend? Yes. It's actually, uh, I've had it for a while um, and used it for a number of different things, but anybody that does anything from an audio standpoint or wants to start their own podcast, rather than using your earbuds, which you can use um, with your laptop or something like that, Chris and I both use it, but we have a USB microphone that works really well. And it's, uh, it's made by Blue Microphones. It's called the Yeti. And we'll have a link to it. And it has you know uh, mute and volume and gain and all that kind of fun stuff. And you can plug headphones into it. And then it's got some settings on it depending on if you're solely recording just yourself or someone sitting across from you. You've got a whole table full of folks. 
uh, whatever it may be. Uh, it has a nice little stand. Uh, it's heavy and uh, stable and uh, does a nice job. That's right. I got one per your recommendation, and uh, that's what we're recording on right now. Don't forget the pop filter. That's very important to get the pop filter. At least for me, it is. Really good. Um, That's a really good microphone. I strongly recommend it, too. So my recommendation is for an app. I actually found this. Someone on Facebook put a link out there to this app, and I found it to be pretty interesting. The um, the the link to the article is actually through uh, Fast Company, and it was talking about an app that uses artificial intelligence to track mansplaining in meetings. So they say here that a, f- a firm created an app that actually tracks men's voices versus female voices. And they say that, you know, it's kind of positioned, I think it's kind of interesting, the position to be used in the workforce so that you could take it into meetings and you could see how many people in a meeting uh, are speaking with a male voice versus how many people are speaking with a female voice. The articles kind of reference studies about male and female employees have inequities in the job force and they get, and part of it they say maybe because they speak less in meetings. Now, I'm not going to get into any the politics around that but the thing is is that i download the app it's free it's called gender eq and what's really interesting is you just have the app and you just press the button and it starts listening and it has a little counter that shows what percentage of men's voices versus what percentage female voices interesting and i realized that if if we would record this in our podcast read that it's a hundred percent men's voice that's right it is I think that speaks to the fact that we need to have a little bit more of gender equality going on in our podcast. We work with a lot of smart women in this industry, and we need to feature them more often. So We should do that. We love listener feedback. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from you on topics, on ideas, on thoughts, on changes. Maybe you got some new ideas for segments. We want you to be part of it. Just hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on Facebook. Hit us up on LinkedIn or wherever you heard about this particularly our website, right, Reed? That's right. Touchpointpodcast.com. He's Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith. Thanks for joining us this week. It's been a blast. Yeah.